I'm going to let her introduce herself some more. Um, and please welcome uh, Dr. Richardson. So uh, thank you for having me. Let me close these blinds. <laughs> Sorry, I just got an email saying you're late, Anna. <laughs> okay, so I have put a talk together for you that's going to touch on a bunch of stuff. And um, I can't remember, is there a chat function for asking questions? Yeah, so what talk? we do sort of at the end, we have people use the raise hand function um, okay. and then we unmute them, but they also can ask questions in the chat as well. Okay, that sounds fine. I am going to share my screen. You all can see that, right? Okay, so I'm coming to you from Microbuyer. We have a couple taglines. It depends on who we're talking to. My favorite is micro.bio.tech, but we also call ourselves genetic engineering for the future and uh, bespoke bacteria for biomanufacturing is another good one. And uh, the point of the company is to improve humankind's symbiosis with bacteria. And before I forget and make sure there's time, it takes an ecosystem. This is the ecosystem we've been building. So it is very important to have different skills. That is my background or my, the only use I am to anybody is to be able to translate between different silos. So we have one of everybody at this company and we're advised by an eclectic group too. And uh, we're very proud of our LabBot. LabBot is our nascent machine learning uh, and I'll, I'll get into that. So the point of the company is that bacteria run this planet. They're just, we have hopped up ideas of how important we are, we're not, we disappear, the bacteria will be fine. Eventually they'll get the planet back into the shape it was when we found it. Uh, too bad we won't be around to see it. But the deeper question is, why are we only engineering a handful of them? So I have a bunch of answers for that question, a bunch of them. Uh, one of the most basal ones is that biotech sort of got abandoned. So you might know what a palimpsest is. This is the uh, Archimedes palimpsest. It's a very famous one where you can see two different centuries of, uh, or yeah, very different centuries, they're far apart, where first their uh, Archimedes drew what considered to, uh, is considered to us a lost manuscript about physics. And then 500 years later, it was written over, scraped off and written over by monks. And the only way to really see what was missing is to look at it with special spectroscopy. And for me, it seems that oil overwrote biotech quite a bit. Uh, and there's a bunch of stuff today that we think of as chemicals that only come from oil that we used to get entirely from animal products and biomass. That's why so much of it was called cellu. It literally came from cellulose. So as soon as we made a decision as a matter of national security, after nearly getting trounced in the Spanish-American War, we decided to start setting aside national reserves for oil for in the strategic interest. And when you spend so much time and money setting up oil for security and energy, you've subsidized an infrastructure that allows you to bleed off stuff for other things very cheaply. So we shifted from making things like cellophane from cellulose to making it from propane and vinyl instead of celluloid. 
and nylon from benzene. Nylon used, literally used to be made from oats. All, uh, all of the oats got processed or oat waste, it got processed into nylon and that's where all of it came from. And now all of it comes from benzene. So you can forgive people for not knowing there are alternate ways to do this that aren't novel. It's not that people now trying to make biomass derived chemicals are inventing new things. This used to be the standard. And you can see where it happened, just when it became a, national, a matter of national security and we shifted over entirely from biomass. So this is where we are now. This is the challenge my company is fighting were almost entirely funded by climate change investors. And I'm grateful for them being patient because the idea is you cannot, we can't go tackle climate change immediately, not with the skills we have for bacteria. If we're gonna use bacteria to solve this problem, I can't just charge into a cow's stomach. We, none of us have the tools. Actually, one of my current investors who just came in, I think, um, oh man, it's been 15 days. They just gave me money. <laughs> they first approached me about a year ago and said, can you do something about cows? And I said, yes, but you can't afford it. They thought it was funny because they were very, very, very wealthy. But my point stands is that we don't have the infrastructure built up to do something about this right now because our infrastructure is petroleum and it's so heavily subsidized that we can't compete with it. So this was not about bacteria yet. <laughs> Where do the bacteria come in? I told you they run the planet. You are all learned scholars, so I don't feel the need to tell you about how they are involved in the carbon cycle and they recycle all of our waste, how they're involved in the nitrogen cycle. They're the only ones that can fix nitrogen for plants and therefore for us, how they're involved in the sulfur cycles, the phosphorus cycles. I said they run the planet. But more proximally to us and what gets the people going really is when they find out how much they matter for our food. I found that while people tend to be on it for uh, pickles, they know that pickles and kimchi and yogurt involve bacteria and cheese. They did not know about chocolate. They did not know about coffee, that the beans basically have to be fermented and are frequently fermented in place in order to make them processable downstream, either mechanically or uh, chemically. That if there is not a fermentation step as the beans come off the tree, by yeast and bacteria in the case of coffee, and I think mostly bacteria in the case of, of chocolate, they're not edible. It's, we would not have these stimulants in our life. Uh, olives, I always thought were, I'm, I'm not a fan. I always thought that was a plant that was trying really, really hard to tell us not to eat it. Not for you, please don't eat me. But the Romans, uh, at the time, everyone was using olives just for oil. Uh, to press out the oil for fuel. The Romans were like, no, we're going to eat this. Nothing stays unconquered by the Romans. And they figured out a fermentation step would render olives edible. So you can do a chemical transformation on olives to make them edible, but generally everyone agrees the ones that you actually use bacteria for taste better. Salami, vinegar, MSG, xanthan gum, these are all entirely made by bacteria. And this is a key part of my argument when I frequently run into um, opposition for what I'm doing. I shouldn't say opposition. Well, there, okay, there's a little bit of opposition, but more of what I run into is skepticism. And it's based around the idea I frequently hear, we can edit any bacteria we want. And at the same time, we don't need to edit any other bacteria. And at the same time, even if you did, they wouldn't scale. 
you couldn't do massive the only ones that will scale are the ones we already have scaled but for most of those people they're thinking yeast and e coli which i'm not going to argue can't scale but they scale for very few applications yeast turning alcohol uh, sugar into alcohol yeah that scales thank goodness but uh, most of the biggest scale fermentations we run with bacteria have nothing to do with yeast and E. coli. Whether or not you can edit them, you can definitely scale them. Otherwise, we would be hip deep in wastewater. So from my perspective, there are two kinds of bacteria. The ones we use for deliberate biomanufacturing, that is either, you know, turning our wastewater into not wastewater, which emits a lot of methane, these tend to be not genetically engineerable, but they are profitable or highly useful. So a lot of these fermentations that come up get turned into chemical companies, and so they're sort of hidden from a success of, say, synthetic biology or bioengineering. For new aspirants to the field, people who are coming on, they don't think necessarily of BASF or ADM as massive bioengineering companies, and I wouldn't necessarily say they do a lot of bioengineering anymore but they do do massive fermentations at massive scales of non-yeast, non-E. coli bacteria that they can't necessarily edit. On the other side, you have the bacteria for deliberate bioengineering that are genetically engineerable and completely unprofitable. I mean, I would even say a lot of brewers that are using yeast, a lot of the companies making, they don't edit that yeast. They, they have a strain that's tasty and they stick with it. So Tide Pods, all come from uh, enzymes that are derived from bacteria that may or may not be genetically engineerable. The one in the picture is Geobastillus stereothermophilus, famously uneditable, famously tons of derivatives that are considered grass, which is pretty rare and hard to get right now, where you say everything associated with this is generally regarded as safe. There's not a lot of grass enzymes. I'm sorry, not a lot of grass organisms, but you'll get derivatives that are grass. So because that's a um, thermophile, it makes high temperature enzymes, which are sweet uh, for processing and better than chemicals. But all Tide Pods are, are three GMO enzymes, an amylase for breaking down starches, a protease for breaking down meats, and a lipase for breaking down fats. Thank goodness, this is why we don't have ring around the collar or grass stains anymore. They're better than chemicals. But um, those might go into a slightly genetically engineerable strain and come out, but originally all these enzymes came from non-genetically engineerable bacteria. Oh, I forgot to say, I'm telling a story. I might be wrong. I welcome being educated. If anybody is like sitting there fuming because I said something totally wrong, I definitely want to hear about it. A lot of our antibiotics and medicines and anti-cancer drugs that come from bacteria, those bacteria are completely impervious to genetic engineering. And the things they make are so good that it's fine. <laughs> it's fine, just you sit there and magically make this thing, it's fine. So erythromycin solely gained from Saccharopelosporia erythrea. We have no other way of getting that, that medicine. And that's one of the antibiotics that's considered necessary to have minimum a second world healthcare infrastructure. You have to have this access to this antibiotic. Um, people have tried moving the PKSs that make antibiotics like this into other organisms that are more pliable, and it's really a tough lift. Uh, these sorts of myceliating and uh, soil-dwelling bacteria make a lot of things we find very useful. They, they make, crazily, they'll make anti-helminth drugs. They're fighting nematodes. They make anti-fungals. They make anti-cancer drugs because they need to coordinate their movement through the soil. So there's a bacteria, Myxococcus xanthus, 
uh, if you remember that Saturday Night Live skit where the two guys night at the Roxbury, they go up and like bump against women, totally uncool. That bacteria does the same thing to E. coli. Uh, they move through the soil, bump up against the E. coli until it lyses, eat them, move through the soil some more. When they have hit the limits of E. coli, they can harass and destroy. They move back along their trail, form 3D structures, and then coordinate with each other who's going to die and who's going to sporulate. And the compounds they use to coordinate that are anti-cancer drugs. So bacteria have rich inner lives that are quite exploitable. They make all these compounds for reasons. If you ignore those reasons, it's really hard to bring them into the lab or to engineer them. And the biggest fermentation, as I said before, that we ever do is wastewater. I really believe, I have not been disabused of the idea that this is the biggest, the largest scale and the widest spread fermentation on the planet. And the bacteria within are complete black boxes. It blew my mind, I found out, since I talked to wastewater people, this is one of my goals, is to turn poop into gold, that uh, they don't really salt or yogurt these treatments. They, there's no set of bacteria that, okay, I'm gonna add this to the treatment and it's gonna go better. They treat these as black boxes most places where hopefully the bacteria we need are in there already. We're going to put it in a tank and we're going to apply mechanical, maybe a little bit of chemical treatment and gas. That's all we can do is just maybe try to tweak things in the residence time in the fermenter by physical stuff. It's really brute force. And meanwhile, the bacteria inside are miserably going through mutually suboptimal conditions to try and coordinate doing what we ask them to do. It's frankly abusive, but if we weren't doing it at all, you know, we wouldn't be here. Of course, on the other side, you have E. coli. Let E. coli stand in as a shorthand for Bacillus subtilis, Cornobacterium, things that, you know, can be genetically engineered by skilled people. But I know you know, in general, in the lay press, among our apprentices, when people say bacteria, they mean E. coli. And you know this because when they say feedstock for bio, biomass or fermentation, they mean sugar. And uh, this is a bias, one of the first biases I really want to address. E. coli has got to stop standing in for us for E. coli. It has got to stop being a shorthand. The, you pick the wrong analogies and you completely limit what you can do. I have trouble hiring people for my company. I put out on the, uh, on the job description, must have at least grown something that was not E. coli. This is hard to find. I get a bunch of people who have only done mammalian cells. I've only done yeast. They apply with only E. coli. I appreciate them. That's not what I, I need. Someone who has at least had that one experience. It's not unlike in computer science. You learn one language and you think that's all you need. I need to hire for my uh, programming position someone who has at least written in one other language, at least two. Once you learn one other thing, you start to understand that there are differences. I walked into a laboratory once and um, the culture was wrecked and I asked my guy, what did you do? And he told me, well, you messed up the protocol for growing this, you forgot sugar. <laughs> and I said, this thing doesn't have a glucokinase. Literally cannot import or use sugar. All you've done is feed its enemies. And in addition, uh, he was shaking it at like 200 RPM. I said, I clearly said 100. He was like, yeah, but you know, bacteria like 200. I don't even know how E. coli got that way. It must have been some selection because we don't walk around with our guts churning at 200 RPM. <laughs> it's, it's interesting to me how this thing has gotten domesticated over time. So the, the analogy 
has been, okay, it's all DNA. So if I can't genetically engineer those guys, I can genetically engineer E. coli, DNA's programming language. I'm just going to get E. coli to do all these jobs because those guys aren't doing it efficiently, or I can't bring them into the lab and scale them without being able to engineer them. And for me, that's a lot like you see an animal that's doing something great. In this case, it's two things. It's eating a biomass you can't do anything else with, like grass, and it's making something that's I guess delicious. I don't drink milk anymore because I can't. But, uh, and you go, but that animal has horns. It's massive. I've never worked with it before. I walked up to it and tried to like put a leash on it and it kicked me. So I'm just going to get this dog. It's been with me for a while. I'm going to either make the dog eat grass or I'm going to milk the dog. And that's going to work for me. And the dog, to the dog's credit, I'm not trying to hate on E. coli. It's like, I'll try. <laughs> But it dies a lot. I think there might be also a misconception in genetic engineering that if it's not dead, it's working and or things really don't want to die that death is a big selection pressure. And I mean, it is, but a lot of things will just die They're, They just give up. It's not happening. And if it does happen, it'll happen for a little while. It reminds me of the bias or the assumption we had to overcome in um, when we first discovered uh, omnipotent, not omnipotent, there, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? I'm sorry, it's early for me. <laughs> when they uh, were forced realizing that some cell cultures could be cultivated forever, and they found the telomere limit by accident, because one student or a scientist was trying to continue this culture forever, and he found at some time point he'd, it would die, and he'd have to go back to the freezer and start again. And he was like, wait, what am I doing wrong? And then he found out that's what everybody did, but they did not think of it as indicative of an issue. So when I discover fermentations only go so long and then you have to go back to your seed stock, this is an issue. You are not setting up an ecosystem where production can continue or you're using the wrong uh, bacteria and you are incurring massive costs if you're using something that you have to tell it, you're going to die unless you do this for me, you are doing bioengineering wrong. And we know how to do bioengineering right. We do, we have no excuse for excluding bacteria from this because we did domestication. And that is the thing that I think humans should be proudest of in all of the things we have ever done to feed each other, to feed each other so efficiently and so deliciously that <laughs> this is what allowed us to be here and you know i'll i'll fight you we, we can argue you can at me i'm at the germ wrangler if you disagree but you're wrong about this one <laughs> i said i want feedback i'm not taking feedback about this position domestication is the best thing we've ever done so all of these are the same species of plant these are all brassica oracea um i don't speak latin the, you get these by selecting uh for different uh, features of the plant. If you pick lateral leaf buds or the stalks, and then you can hybridize them. So Gylon only hit the market, sorry, Broccolini only hit the market in the 80s. It's a hybrid of Gylon and Broccoli. We are rewarding the plants for doing this, not punishing them for not doing this. It has been so effective to be mutually satisfied in an arrangement, not to threaten them with death but to say, continue to do what you're doing, accentuate what you're doing, and we will both prosper. And it worked with almost every animal <laughs> that we have seriously attempted it with. 
these are all animals that we can ask our children. We're so proud of and so into these organisms being in our flock that our children know the sounds all of them make. They're all in petting zoos. I mean, except the bees. Although some people go pet bees at apiaries or put on them. Uh, the cat being an exception, and we'll talk about that later. I don't think cats are truly domesticated, or at least the domestication with cats looks a little different <laughs> than the one with dogs. Domestication is a two-way street. We learned in eighth grade um, history about the history of man that our teeth changed when we started cooking things, when we started planting things, our behaviors changed. Cats are changing us a lot more than dogs changed us, in my opinion, but all, my point here is that on this planet, in history of our interaction with other organisms, we work together well by recognizing what an organism does well and accentuating its ability to do that and not by ordering them around. That's not really what the pattern is here. And domestication is such an underlying pattern in bioengineering, we didn't even freaking invent it. So you have ants, farming fungus, farming uh, aphids. You have termites farming fungus. You have that damselfish in the middle. We consider him something of a little butthead. Uh, he'll pick what we would consider good fungus off a coral reef so he can plant the one he'd rather eat. And then he defends his farm. Um, plants have domesticated bacteria. We mentioned earlier about nitrogen fixation, but they form little nodules. If you're not aware, the way I explain to people how this, this is one of my favorite domestication stories. And plants put out a call. They need to break up rock. They put out a call for bacteria. The roots don't just break up rock. They, they recruit bacteria that can, that can help them soften up the rock. And when they want nitrogen, they put out a call. They say, Rick and Morty cell, show me what you got. And the bacteria come in audition. They do a little tap dance. They say, if you let me in, I will not only fix nitrogen for you. I will also make chemicals that will repel your enemies. I will uh, make sure to keep the pest population down. I'll do all kinds of stuff if you let me in. And the plants let them in on a probationary basis. And if the bacteria just flops on the couch and watches Netflix, the plant will actually sanction the root and cut it off so it dies. And if the bacteria fulfills a promise of not only nitrogen, but other services, the plant will nodule over and they'll have a nice little symbiosis going. And uh, when we discovered the nitrogen boosted plants, we crashed that economy, we wrecked that domestication. We added nitrogen and nothing else. We've lost countless species of bacteria that were helping plants propagate and survive and we didn't even notice at the time. And this is something my company desperately wants to rescue. As I said, we have to walk before we can run. This is a complex arrangement, not just between the bacteria, but between the plants. But we have to recognize that we really stepped in that one. Uh, lichen, interesting symbiosis. And somewhere on Japan, in Japan, there appears to be an arrangement between monkey and deers. And that one I'm going to let you read because it can get a little salacious, apparently. But... I need to change. I really feel the need to change what we mean by bioengineer. I don't think it's fair that everyone from the ants to the people who brought us corn labor under this absolute working paradigm and don't get the title bioengineer. It's not fair. And uh, the first step to fixing this, I think, is especially relevant to how I was 
trained. I mean, I've been working in synthetic biology since 2004, maybe earlier than that, writing software for synthetic biology, writing synthetic yeast genomes. And uh, synthetic biology is a buzzword. It's a fancy, uh, it doesn't, it's not a field. It's not a field. It needs to be, to be, to deliver on the promise, it, it keeps promising. It needs to be more of an ecosystem. It needs to not say, oh, we're bringing engineering into biology. That is not working. You cannot control things. We're going to talk about that. But what I try to tell um, aspirants, what I try to tell trainees, is that they need to cultivate a deep respect and understanding of the boundaries of their specialty and the next specialty over. We need to understand history. We need to understand ethics. We need to understand the plants. We need to understand design and communications. We need to understand policy. Synthetic biology promises to span a lot of things, but then kind of tends to not in my experience. And I don't think there's a, a better illustration of how little we the, your classic, the, the synthetic biologist I'm beating up on in this talk, then um, the, the, the way we describe what we do and what metrics we pick, anyone who's using like the price of DNA sequencing or synthesis as a metric for the capabilities of the field, I think has surrendered to the analogy. And computer science you know, they're comparing this to Moore's curve, but when the computer scientists get more capacity, they know what to do with it and they can deliver on it. Getting like virtual reality headsets and AI that actually scares us. The AI is scaring us because when they get more capacity, they have plans for it, they can execute on it, they are, they're making things. And we are able to synthesize and sequence more and more and more, but what are we doing with it? I, I think that's the wrong metric. So if you wanna be a bioengineer like me, you have got to eschew the analogies that are creeping in from other fields that aren't as intersectional as the one this one needs to be. So I don't know how many of you are straight up computer scientists, but Alan Perlis won the first Turing Prize in computer science. And he has this set of epigrams. You, you gotta, they're like koans. You gotta go read them. Even if you're not a programmer or computer scientist, so many of them are relevant cross field. He wrote them in 1982. They are still 100% all of them relevant today. I mean, he makes jokes about Fortran in 1982 that are still funny today. One of my favorites is uh, never have a good idea you're not willing to be responsible for. And I stick that on my employees constantly. They're like, we should do this. I'm like, now you should do that. Uh, <laughs> you just volunteered. But one of the ones I find the most relevant to synthetic biology is fools ignore complexity. Pragmatists suffer it. Some can avoid it and geniuses remove it. So, Complexity at the minimum in biology is not something we should ignore. I think for domestication and bioengineering, we should know when it's none of our business. Uh, one of the taglines of our company is also sequencing is meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. What matters is function. I don't need to know how you do it, just to know that you do it and to encourage you to do it. All of the people domesticating corn and carrots, they didn't know how the thing was made orange and they were still super effective in getting it to make more. How did we get to these poor analogies though and who am I actually gonna call out and be a little salty with? Well, 
Carolee Orecki was the first person to use the term biotechnology. And at the time, he meant it to refer to his massively impressive pig farm. I mean, it was a seriously big pig farm. And he really meant the term to mean something like uh, scaling of biology and using it for human, um, human use. I don't really have a beef with that. Heinz Wolf was a communicator who coined the term bioengineering. And this is where I think it started to go off the rails that engineering as a pragma sort of brings in the idea of control. And Tom Knight explicitly says it's about control and circuits and about standardization, that we're gonna do the same things to one organism or they'll apply to every organism and it's going to work that way because we're going to apply the theories of control from electrical engineering, from computer science. And um, this one doesn't work for me because cells are not machines. They've proven it to us over and over again. DNA is not a programming language. DNA really should be thought of as a, a working memory, not a set of instructions. A genome is a, is a cookbook. It's a cookbook and we don't really know what all the recipes are for. The planet is a library of this cookbook. So that's why you hear sadness in my voice when I talk about the bacteria we have lost through nitrogen fer fertilization and the, um, the, yeah, being able to just dump nitrogen on the plant economy. DNA should be thought of as a, a collection of possible recipes that could be of use. And it works that way because cells are analog and imperfect self-replicators. This for me is the core of biology. If you do not accept that cells are analog and imperfect self-replicators, that the number one rule of, you know, the biology equivalent of thermodynamics, rule one is you make imperfect copies of yourself. You can't be made not to. And not at this point in the cycle. We can't stop making imperfect copies. And uh, it, it can't be escaped. If you cannot accept this or you don't keep this in the back of your mind, if you don't bake this into your practice, you are setting yourself up for some disappointments. Rule number two is there's probably no reason for that thing you just observed. And rule number three is the physicist won't believe either of the first two rules. But you really need to accept this. And I can tell you why that analogy of um, control or standardization isn't going to work for cells. You have never in your life designed a car and decided it needed side impact airbags in order to comply with regulations. And you designed the car with side impact airbags and you started punching it through uh, the, the, the assembly line. And halfway down the assembly line, <laughs> the car makes some car babies and one of the car babies decides it will make more car babies faster if it just leaves out these complex side impact airbags. And eventually outside of the assembly line, you've just got a bunch of cars that are not legal, not street legal. That never happens. You make a design, you control it, you make the factory. That happens with cells constantly and before we can actually see it to correct it or adjust our selection. You know that you leave a bacteria on a Petri dish. You can't even see it. When you come back, you see something. Selection is happening whether or not you know what you're selecting for, you're always selecting, call that rule four. So cells are analog and imperfect self-replicators. They cannot be controlled, they can only be rewarded. And that's why we have to develop a feeling for the organism, that you have to respect why it does or have a hypothesis for when you find it, why does it have this behavior? The first bacteria well, we went for as a company um, at Microbiome. We are looking for 
product waste and bacteria matches, which is to say, we recognize that sugar is a terrible feedstock for uh, beating petroleum. Sugar is tied to the price of gas, right? You have to refine it. You have to transport it to where it's going to be refined. You put energy in, um, all of that adds up. So if you're trying to make a chemical that sells on the market for less than say refined sugar can be obtained for, you're not gonna beat petroleum. And we're not gonna convince everyone to go into uh, biomass by matching petroleum. We're gonna to have to beat it to incentivize uh, the creation of a biomass infrastructure. So when we look at a product and we look at the current cost model for making it from petroleum, what we're looking to do to beat it is to pick a organic waste that rots because you know bacteria eat everything and when you eat something, something else comes out. So methane comes out of just leaving organic waste to rot. You're calling it compost is really a methane generator. I mean, you have to carefully manage it to not get it to do methane, but how many people are really doing that? So we look for a waste that some bacteria can eat, is motivated to eat or is already eating. And then we look, filter those bacteria for ones that make the product or make something that's a precursor of the product. And we don't really at that point care after that, we don't care how they do it. We care what their motivation was in that spot. We say who was doing this because that was a matter of survival for them or because their surroundings were awarding it for them. So uh, we didn't invent this one. We didn't have to. This was known for the past 50 years. There's a bacteria in the cow gut that eats whatever it is that cows eat, so not refined sugar, and secretes succinic acid. Succinic acid is made by most aerobic cells on the planet. It's part of the Krebs cycle and they tend to want to keep it because it's a cycle. But this particular bacteria is just like, here, have it. The reason it does that is because cows actually eat that instead of sugar. That's how the cow's gluconeogenesis cycle works is it takes in propionic acids and succinic acids. And so it has this massive bioreactor. If you came to our offices, there'd be cows everywhere. We love cows. They're the best bioreactors on the planet. We really need to model more things after this modular ecosystem of bioreaction. But in the, in the cow gut, this bacteria eats what the cow eats, the cow's feeding it, and then it feeds the cow. And succinic acid is a target, it's a platform chemical that's used to make lycra, it could be used to make um, adipic acid for nylon, it's used to make a lot of our uh, automobile and bathroom plastics. It's a commodity chemical, platform chemical. And so there have been a bunch of companies that go, we're gonna make this from biomass. It's clear, every cell's making it, we're gonna have a path through it. And you do, but not through E. coli. So three or four companies have gone bankrupt, trying to do it in yeast, trying to do it in E. coli. We're trying to do it in bacteria similar to the one I'm talking about, but feeding it sugar. <laughs> so uh, we find a waste product this bacteria can eat happily because it doesn't need sugar. And we encourage it to produce a commodity chemical that it already produces. It makes our job easy. We're not geniuses. What we are is super organized and respectful of the motivations and the abilities of bacteria. And again, not to belabor a dead horse, but bioengineers are the ones who go figure out what signs people or what signs animals make when they're happy or sad, figure out how to cultivate them, how to grow them, how to respect them at some point. Oh, it's not gonna play. Okay, the dog is wagging its tail. Somebody had to figure out that minute was happy. This cat is wagging its tail, not happy. Every bacteria has different needs and different reactions, and you cannot treat them all like they're a monolith. Absolutely, they're as different from each other as we are from mushrooms. 
So what microbiome does is automate that feeling for the organism. That's all we do. I didn't even have to invent robots. The robots exist. Apparently I own more of this one kind of robot than anybody else on the West Coast minimum, maybe in the country. <laughs> I own so many of them that uh, they walk their VPs through my lab to be like, look at this. Uh, they were trying to upsell me and I had to really explain to them what's actually happening. And they told me nobody else is doing this. So I trust them because they have to go in and set up these robots for a bunch of other labs. But all we do is ask every single bacteria, what's up? What do you like to eat? How do you like to be scritched? Like what pH, what shaking conditions, you know, do you like hugs? Will you grow on solid media? Can I put glycerol in you to freeze you? And finally, what are you making and can I have some? And so I have told my investors and they have gone to their science advisors and not been able to disabuse themselves of this notion that even the very best microbiologists on the planet can't answer a question like, I need a bacteria that eats maltose but not mannose, that grows at a pH of four but dies at a pH of eight, that uses NADPH as a cofactor for this particular enzyme instead of NADH, and that secretes a five carbon organic acid. Who have you got? Nobody knows. Most of the bacteria on the planet, even the ones we can't culture if not engineer, people do not know what their ranges are. A lot of people didn't know that E. coli will just grow in salt water. It just grows in our seas. It can. I mean, it's not thrilled about it, but it has a range that includes that kind of salinity. What? So all microbiome is is an automated feeling for the organism. And when you really know the organism, you're not going to cowboy rodeo it. That's a bad idea anyway. Cows are broad. They have a weird gait and they hate it. We, we have had horses. You can domesticate anything. If it's the right thing for the job, you can. I know people, oh, zebras aren't domesticatable because they're mean. Well, they're totally mean, but you can domesticate them. It's just not worth your time. So part of getting a feeling for the organism is knowing when or if they're actually worth going through the process with. But just because it's there doesn't mean you have to use it. So yes, function is more important than sequence. I got up on stage once. I was probably being ornery. I mean, I was definitely being ornery. And uh, I was sort of having an allergic reaction to the project I did in grad school, which was helping write a synthetic genome. And at the time, I, at the time still, I'm kind of like, I, I don't think this project was the right project, definitely for me to be working on. And one of the reasons is that it's very sequence focused. It was very much like we are in control of every single bit of sequence that gets written. We are in control, control, control. And anytime people are saying control, I'm having a, I'm not happy. Um, and I got off stage uh, and a bunch of people after me were like, oh, you know, Sarah, yeah, yeah. But then here is the sequence we wrote for this project. Here is the sequence we wrote for that project. It's very much about we decided what was going to happen instead of maybe seeding the organism with some suggestions and letting it decide what was there. If you're cloning something in E. coli and you can't get it right, he's telling you, the sequence, the function, it's not working out. You can't just keep saying this sequence, make it, make this sequence. You need to, <laughs> I'm belaboring the point. Anyway, I got off stage and Orrin Katz from Western Australian University came up to me and said, great talk. Do you know why you said function, function, function? And everyone else got up and said sequence, sequence, sequence. I was like, please tell me Orrin. He goes, I call it DNA chauvinism. DNA is the only thing the man can contribute. 
I think I screamed so loud I caused a minor furor in the atrium, but I haven't been able to forget it. There's a very conceited, and it doesn't have to be men, there's a very conceited attitude towards I designed this and you, you lower organism, will just go do it. Uh, I hate that. You, you see a lot of trees <laughs> where it's like, oh, bacteria are the base, ancient bacteria, and then man is at the top. Or there's a lot of uh, focus on the animals you can see in these big trees as opposed to the animals that are actually keeping, the organisms that are keeping the rest of us alive. I think it's important to point out the bacteria are not ancient or simple. They are just as old as we are. We have some common ancestor way, way back then. They've just specialized in different things and they should be respected. Just like I keep making physicist jokes, I actually respect them just usually from across the room. So in order to be a microbial, uh, microbial bioengineer and get away from that um, bad analogy of sequence and control, we first really have to deeply accept that all of our annotations are hypotheses. So you go look in NCBI, you're like, okay, I need this kind of gene or whatever. Um, it's a lie. It's a lie unless somebody has written a paper where they actually functionally annotated it. It's, you have to assume it's a lie. Just like autoclaving, when in doubt, assume it's evil. Just sterilize stuff. If, if you're not sure if it's clean, clean it. It's not clean. If you're not 100% sure of the provenance. And so a lot of synthetic biology, if it's based on, uh, let me take a gene from some other organism and it looks like what I want or I assume it's what I want and I slap it in here, that's you're taking on a risk. Microbiome is about reducing these risks. It's uh, about knowing what organisms are doing and being able to do the diff. So we're approaching functional annotation in a high throughput way instead of relying on existing annotations. We have our own annotations. They're very good. <laughs> I think they're very good. And then of course, we're not really looking to do a lot of heterologous expression. We're not trying to move them around because the whole point is when we pick the right organism, we can genetically edit any organism. But this one shook me. I think it was 2012 when I saw papers like this and I was like, I thought, our RNA would be really hard <laughs> to miss. But if you're running um, pipelines, you know, and you're, there's a lot of sequencing data come through, like we were saying, we're sequencing more and more. I, I guess this is an easy miss. And, um, but also even we're considering it annotated and you're looking for some function that you can move around. It's hard to understand the context or what other genes might be involved, cis or trans, if so many of them are just marked putative or hypothetical, and you can understand how this would happen if it's turtles all the way down to E. coli, which is the best uh, characterized organism outside of microbiome, that if you have a gene that you can't find an E. coli or have a hypothesis for an E. coli, you're gonna have to say it's putative or hypothetical. You just have to. Uh, it's probably a gene. Organisms don't have so much space that they're willing, these kinds of organisms don't have so much space that they're willing to carry not genes around as much as far as I know. But if you haven't triggered the, the environment it needs to use it in, it's going to be hard to figure out. If you're always growing it at 37 degrees all by its lonesome in sugar, some of these genes are there for the edge cases. Evolution is a messy engineer. She leaves her tools all over the bench. Just because it's, you don't see it being used doesn't mean it's not a real protein or that you couldn't trigger it. Especially, this one really bothers me. We grow them all by themselves. That's unnatural. It's abusive. 
um, just like shelter in place is really highlighted to some people how much they need other people. Bacteria need other bacteria. So one of Microbiar's missions is to really break out of accident culture and uh, be able to foster ecosystems. So, all right, we've discussed find the function you want, domesticate the bacteria, get it in a macro sense, you know, trainable, in a micro sense, engineerable, genetically engineerable. So you can sort of accentuate the traits you want, maybe add some information that they can leverage, but we're not talking about dropping 10 genes in. I'm talking about making them less self-sufficient on their own. And so the analogy I use for this is feral, tame, domesticated. We need to have some metric of when we're gonna say, we believe this organism, just like a cow, is safe to pin out in a field. And it'll basically stay in the pen. If the pin breaks, we can still herd it back in. So uh, right now you would consider a raccoon completely feral, and you should. It's not containable. It will not stay anywhere. You can't, it's got creepy little hands. It's going where, where it wants to go. So for my microbial fermentation, we mean you need to stay in the fermenter. You need to not walk out of the factory on a tech or in a tech. So E. coli is failing that one already that at 30, if it likes 37 degrees, it likes your body temperature. It came from your gut. It's happy going back in your gut. And whether or not it's gonna be pathogenic, it's not containable that way. If fermentation worked at a higher temperature with bugs that couldn't tolerate ambient temperatures, you know, that's containability right there. So just picking a different host already helps you start to address containability. So uh, the next question is usefulness. And for us, as I said, we need to eat biomass, particularly waste biomass, and at least excrete some chemical that can be harnessed or used as part of a chemical uh, production pipeline or detoxify things, you know, depollute bioremediation. So um, raccoons are not useful. I don't know about cats. You can, we can argue about cats. Dogs are definitely useful. Um, we've even trained them to take care of uh, the less able people in our community. They're so useful that they, uh, they're, they augment our societies. Um, docile. For us, docile means you at least acknowledge that you hurt us. And in, micro in microbes, that means I put DNA in and you take it up and you maybe change your behavior. For us, that what we say to you needs to mean something. Um, let me say that again. You're, you're not gonna get a response if you're talking in the wrong language or you're asking them to do something they literally can't do. There's no way to respond. So if I asked a dog to make me dinner, I mean, I can't call him not docile because he didn't make me dinner. It matters what DNA you put into an organism. And finally, they need to be safe. So we talked about how the E. coli and fermenter might be non-pathogenic, but they're radicalizable. <laughs> One of my favorite CRISPR stories is about, uh, I tell people when I do communication, it's like grade schools and, uh, you know, policymakers or politicians, it's like the Jedi and the Sith on your skin sometimes, that there's some bacteria that are constantly trying to pass like an antibiotic resistance cassette to another skin bacteria that takes up a lot of space on your skin and is good for us. And uh, that one has a broken CRISPR, last time I checked, and it can't uh, get new uh, uh, spacers, so it can't defend against novel DNA, but the spacers it has left protect it against, or protect it, prevent it from taking up that antibiotic resistance cassette. They're just targeted exactly at that plasmid. And so the Sith are out there trying to say, hey, come on, you want to be more robust. And the Jedi are like, 
that's a path to evil, this bacteria story on our skin. So bacteria that are safe aren't necessarily permanently safe. And so our domestication model really entails uh, a pattern of what are you self-sufficient in and how can I carve away your self-sufficiency so you depend more on me? For us, genetic engineerability typically means taking stuff away. So we consider the containability here. Uh, my golden retriever, if I leave him in the backyard, he's not going to start catching squirrels and escape. He, he's domesticated. He depends on me. They, wolves will not look to people to help them solve problems and dogs will. We have taken away dog independence. We've probably taken away their ability to mature fully into adults. They're kind of permanent puppies. And so they need, <clears throat> they need help. For uh, us in bacteria, that kind of means, look, you're going to live in a fermenter or in my lab. There is no need for you to maintain a galactose uptake or usage operon. Galactose being the most common sugar in the soil. That's your escape route. That's your little, like, I've got this fallback. You don't need this fallback if you're going to work with me. I'm going to take that away from you. And so bioengineering needs to be thought of as less an additive science. Like I'm going to stuff a bunch of genes in you and punish you if you get rid of them, as opposed to I'm going to sort of whittle away at your independence, but, re but support you. I'm taking on the responsibility for keeping you in my crew. Okay, it's been an hour of shit. Um, yeah, so our secret is not so much this first one. Um, a lot of this information is not as useful as it looks, but we do high throughput, high resolution phenotype investigation. This is a scientific term for you scientific audience. We do look at the literature, but the literature is not as reliable as it needs to be. So I would take these two arrows and sort of downgrade them. But we are secretly a machine learning company wrapped in a thin candy coating of micromolecular biology. Um, when you know more about bacteria than anybody else and you've made observations nobody has ever been able to make before, you can take the tools that the people who call themselves synthetic biologists take and then actually use the same ones. I don't have to invent anything to talk to new bacteria. I just have to respect them where they are. And I think even for people who are currently, for very good reasons, locked into working in the model organisms, having a little bit more respect for how they feel because the emergent property of making imperfect copies of yourself are basically preference. And having a little more respect for preference will help everybody advance the cause of bioengineering. <sighs> That's my last slide, actually. So I'm sorry for taking up the whole hour. Um, that was great. Okay. Um, thank you. So we have a, a couple of minutes. Um, there is one question already in the chat box there. I'll just uh, read it out loud. So. They're, they're interested to know if your decision to, to, to found Microvire um, was based on a specific application you had in hand that was ready for translation to practice, or were you driven purely by the, the big idea of it? Um, so I consider myself an engineer. Also, I see a question. It's like I'm not a cat person. I have two cats in the room right now. There's one right there. That's a cat. So I would say I'm, not, I'm less a cat person and more like I know what a cat is. But the reason I started microbiome, I was trained, um, I did two years of medical school and two years of molecular biology on top of that simultaneously for a PhD in human genetics and molecular biology. And then the DOE stepped in uh, basically at year two and said, you also need to take two years of applied math and two years of computer science. 
at the graduate level from those departments. So I did a lot of training and the point was to turn me into someone who respects silos and can cross communicate. So high performance computing and basic molecular biology. I'm not the perfect person in either of those silos, but I know how to translate the vocabulary that's specific to one, specific to the other, and where they're using different words for the same thing and get them to work together. I'm the second or third best person at my company to ask about anything. My job is to make them communicate better. So when I hit this, we're working in yeast, we're working in E. coli, I'm not seeing so much a scale up of new chemicals, new uh, old hosts making new things. I'm not seeing that. And I'm seeing in other fields the different language. I was really driven to make a tool. I said, why don't we have more organisms that all these brilliant people with problems and solutions for the problems can use as a tool to get there? I want to enable all these other people. That's why for my postdoc, I went straight to the government. I said, I'm going to build infrastructure. And if uh, Target had to build ports and then Walmart had to build ports, the shoreline would be ugly. Infrastructure gets built by the people and everybody gets to use it. And I was having trouble getting other people to embrace that there. And uh, the idea, like I said, I built it microbiome was I'm going to build an infrastructure where you pour bacteria in one and you get to know it really fast and then you can actually apply engineering tools to it. That was my entire motivation. The only thing I can bring to the climate change fight is organization. That's my only skill, organization and communications. All right, well, thank you very much, Sarah. Um, this was fascinating. I always love listening to you talk and um, demystifying some things, but also breaking some of the, the, pre the preconceived notions of, of engineering and particularly synthetic biology. So I really want to thank you for taking the time to, to be with us today. I know it's early on the <laughs> West Coast as well. Um, I, I'm hope, just lazy. <laughs> I, I hope the, the fires um, are not um, impacting you too much, um, but um, thank you again. Um, and if anyone has any further questions, um, I will put um, her tweet, her Twitter handle, and her email address are all on the website. Um, so please tweet at, at Sarah. Um, and if you're interested in learning more about her company, um, please reach out to her uh, as well. So thank, thank you. you all for listening to me rant. <laughs> thank you so much, Sarah. Okay.